Hello, colleagues out there. This is uh, Richard McCallum, the uh, editor-in-chief of the Journal of Investigative Medicine. And as is our habit every month, uh, we bring to you a, a podcast uh, interviewing uh, a nationally recognized colleague who's been involved with our society as well and um, updating you on some topics uh, that would be of in interest. Um, this month uh, is American Heart Month. And uh, we felt very appropriate, therefore, to have a colleague who would talk about some of the interesting new topics in cardiology. And uh, I'm very fortunate uh, in that uh, a colleague of mine who has been at Texas Tech for some years and now has just moved to um, Indiana uh, is going to be joining me, uh, Dr. Hasha Nagarajareo, who's a um, a fellow of the American College of Cardiology. He's also a fellow of the Cardiologic Angiographic Interventionist uh, Group or Society. Uh, he's been with me here in Texas Tech uh, for a number of years, but he first of all, dating back to his training, internal medicine residency at University of Mississippi Medical Center in Jackson, uh, going on to heart failure and heart transplant fellowship at uh, Newark Beth Israel Medical Center in Newark, New Jersey, a returning University of Mississippi Medical Center from 2010 to 13 as a cardiovascular diseases fellow, and going into interventional cardiology fellowship also, uh, in, uh, but this time in University of Louisville Medical Center um, before joining us uh, after being a consultant in cardiology and Jacksonville. He came to us in uh, 2014 and uh, has been very active here at, uh, at Texas Tech uh, as, as an assistant professor and moving into uh, a direction of Structural Heart Clinic, co-director of Cardiac Catheterization Lab and a consultant in, um, as well in our cardiology program, helping run our helping run our fellowship program as well in cardiology. So he's been active with me in research. Uh, he publishes in the Journal of Investigative Medicine. He's been a reviewer for us in the Journal of Investigative Medicine. He's currently a fellow of the Southern Society for Clinical Investigation as well, our sister society of the Southern Society for American Federation for Clinical Research, which is now meeting, as you know, virtually, uh, not in New Orleans as usual, which we all miss very much. So let's get to the subject for today. What's new in cardiology? Um, and I, I'm going to take um, uh, the opportunity to quiz uh, Dr. Nagarajareo on a Interesting area. Uh, this is the uh, placement uh, by uh, catheter uh, transaortic valve replacement um, and transcatheter aortic valve implantation, TAVI, uh, an area that I wasn't really familiar with until I recently had a patient who uh, had a rather interesting uh, post-TAVI course 
and Dr. Nagarajarea helped me a lot in helping to understand that. So I think it'd be something that you, the listeners, would benefit from. So I'm going to have Dr. Nagarajarea give us a snapshot of um, why we're using TAVI and uh, I guess the pros and cons and the, and the outcome of this procedure. Well, thank you for a gracious introduction, Dr. McCallum, and uh, I'm uh, very pleased to be here and uh, very happy to be involved with the, both the research as well as uh, organizational aspect of uh, uh, SSCI. And uh, I really appreciate this opportunity. And um, it is always a very interesting topic to look at the, how the new field <clears throat> of structural heart disease is progressing. Even though we say it is new, the various aspects of structural interventions have been, uh, are being carried out for several decades now, but it's only over past uh, eight to 10 years or so uh, that uh, because of the pioneering work done by Dr. Alan Cribier, that we started thinking about minimalistic techniques to replace uh, the cardiac structures. So at this point in time, we're in a place where we pretty much are able to do most of the replacement therapies, including the valvular therapies, uh, plugging the holes in the heart, opening the holes and creating new holes, um, pretty much without cutting a chest open uh, in any of these patients. Uh, except for the fact that um, the chest does need to be cut open uh, in, in um, certain, a certain uh, percentage of patients. For example, in cardiac transplant patients, for example, those patients who need bypass surgeries, for most part, the valve replacement therapies in, in, uh, in, uh, in the adult uh, patients are now being done with a minimalistic approach through a, a small hole, literally in either in a groin or now through various other places like even through the carotid arteries or even through the axillary arteries. Those are the new, new, newer development or past uh, three to five years or so. Uh, regarding TAVI, um, the extensive research has been done, the extensive evidence of materials that's being collected uh, very evidently points out that um, right from the beginning of this technique about 10 to 12 years ago, when it was still experimental uh, to the current iteration of the valves, the, we have reached a point where the results of these procedures are pretty much equivalent or in some cases, even better uh, than, the, than the surgical uh, replacement of the valves as well. Uh, for example, when I was training as a fellow approximately about 10 years ago, uh, nine to 10 years ago or so, uh, we still carried out the transcatheter aortic valve. Basically, we put a plastic tube in the groin, femoral artery in the groin, and inside that we take a valve which is crimped on top of a balloon and take it all the way up to the heart and just cross the native aortic valve, which is destroyed or which is calcified, is narrow, and then implant the valve and then come out to the same hole. So instead of cutting a chest open uh, all the way uh, uh, do, uh, doing a sternotomy, we now are faced with a situation where we could implant this valve through a small hole in the groin, a small hole in the neck in the carotid uh, route case, a small hole in the arm if you use the axillary artery, and come out of it, close that hole by in a certain suture technique, which is also done percutaneously, and the patients pretty much go home the next day. So this is this has really been a uh, very um, 
kind of gigantic uh, step in the interventional cardiology over the past uh, decade or so. Even comparing to the first generation valves to the current iteration, which is like a fourth generation of the valves, the size of the tube that we used to put in uh, the uh, groin used to be around 23 French. So the French size is a size of the catheter. One French is approximately equal to 0.33 millimeters. So we used to put about 23 French sized uh, tubes into the groin through which we used to take up the valves. Currently, the largest size that we use to replace the valve is 16 French. That's, that's how much miniaturistic uh, or minimalistic the technology has become. In fact, most of these valves could be replaced with a 14 French sheet through either groin or a neck or an arm. Um, and also, just uh, speaking about the improvement in technology as well as the evidence that we have collected over the past decade or so, initially when these valves were launched, it was only used in patients who, have, who had prohibitive surgical risk. For example, somebody who would be surgical rejects, too high risk to be operated upon. So somebody, for example, who's like 70, 75, who, have, who, who did not have a good surgical risk, would usually have a surgery as a replacement option for the valve. But now, even in the low risk category where the patients are low risk for the surgery, we know that the percutaneously replaced valve is equivalent to the surgical therapy. So that's the uh, chain that has come over this place. And very attractive option is that patients would go home on the same day. There's no rapid, there's rapid recovery. There's no long prolonged uh, convalescent phase where they are recovering with a large wound on the chest which needs to heal, which may or may not heal well. So this is a revolution in terms of uh, new technology in uh, transcatheter valve replacement. That's a very, very nice summary. Um, so, so what you're saying is that um, it's, it's ideal for, for uh, certainly the, the older half of the population that surgery in the past might have been a definitely um, unpredictable outcome perhaps are they are those patients being more favored now the older half of the population or do all patients who need aortic valve replacement are they pretty much is this, is this the first choice now so there are two approaches to this um, uh, the data is still not clear with regards to younger patients but the older a person gets, there's a more risk of prolonged recovery time. There's a risk of perioperative stroke. There is definitely a risk of stroke with TAVR as well, because while taking up a 14 French catheter or a valve on a 14 French catheter, you can scrape some stuff off of the aorta and that can go up the carotids and cause stroke. But there are ways we can protect against it. There are ways we can put the filters into the carotids mm -hmm. and then take, up, take the valve up the catheter and then deploy the valve safely and then take the filters out. So definitely in somebody, the consensus is very fast approaching. There's somebody who's more than 65 years of age who comes in with a severe aortic stenosis and symptomatic severe aortic stenosis, they should preferably go for tower. I'm pretty sure the data is already uh, robust. I'm pretty sure within the next one or two years, we'll have significant more than a decade worth of data, which will show that these patients will definitely be offered TAVR or TAVI as their first choice rather than the open surgical repair. Now, people who are less than 65 data is less clear. And even now for those patients, 
the first approach should be a surgical consult. <clears throat> um, all patients should have surgical consults, but particularly those with six, less than 65 should have surgical consult. Even in them, I think the use of metallic valves have come down because the metallic valve is you know, fraught with so many uh, issues. Even though they're stable structurally at most times, patient would have to be on fully anticoagulation like Coumadin with INR of two to three yeah. because there's still yeah. no evidence of newer uh, oral anticoagulants like Epixaban or Rivaroxaban and their effects on the metallic valve. So they have to be on Coumadin. Many people cannot take Coumadin because of diet issues. Uh, so the newer tower valves, they could go home the next day with just a dual line of platelet therapy, just an aspirin or plavix, sure. unless they have another reason to be in anticoagulations. So there's been definitely a dramatic shift in this landscape, but mm -hmm. still, even you can see that in nowadays, when patients who are less than 65 are being operated, they're being offered more of a non-metallic valve or tissue valve, so that if in case that, that tissue valve degenerates over a period of next five, 10 or 15 years, then there's always a chance that we can, the patient would be at that time 70 or 75, and the second replacement could be done percutaneously with an overnight procedure so that we don't have to cut the chest open for the patient again. Excellent. Well, let me ask you about another procedure, um, which um, I've heard about. I'm a gastroenterologist. We tend to have all sorts of names as well, but this is called the Watchman Procedure, interesting name. And uh, I'd like you to update us and the audience about where that is and uh, where you assess it. So the Watchman is a, uh, a trade name for one of the uh, FDA-approved devices, which actually closes left atrial appendage. So just like we have appendix in our, uh, you know, gastrointestinal tract, who's, uh, you know, this debatable as to what this what its function is, there's also an appendage in the heart, which is a outpouching of the left atrium uh, towards the anterior part of left atrium towards the chest portion or lateral side of the left atrium. Uh, some people think that this kind of acts as a reservoir for the heart uh, blood when there is not adequate amount of the blood flow. Some people think that it's just there to cause nuisance. So about 95 to 99% of clots, uh, which happens in the atrial fibrillation, are formed in this appendage, left atrial appendage. So an uh, idea came forth uh, several years ago, uh, probably close to a decade ago, that closing off of this appendage would uh, percutaneously would be helpful. Now, this is nothing new with regards to the CT surgery data, but this is new for interventional surgery, interventional cardiology. Whenever you see a patient uh, with the, who requires a bypass surgery with a, with a arrhythmic, arrhythmic issue with atrial fibrillation, you have seen surgeons go in, open the chest, they also clip the appendage so that the risk of stroke reduces. So we have robust surgical data to show that the atrioclip device or the surgical suturing of the left atrium would prevent the stroke. So the interventional cardiologist came up with the concept that why can't we do this percutaneously? So basically uh, there are two devices right now. Uh, first device is called as Watchman device, which is a left atrial appendage closure device. And the second device, which is going to be soon approved by the FDA called AMOLED device, uh, by another company. The, the way it works is that in the patients who have atrial fibrillation, who have high risk of GI bleeding, uh, for example, somebody who has had a GI bleed or somebody who has had a head bleed who cannot take 
coumarin or warfarin are newer anticoagulants, but they are still at a high risk of stroke. If I could offer a therapy which would reduce the risk of stroke by about 97% or so, in some cases, even up to 98, 99%. Now, data is all over the place, but definitely more than 95%. Then that would be a substantial decrease in the risk of stroke in these patients. So those patients could now have a, um, an option to reduce the risk of stroke. So what we do is we access the uh, uh, right or left femoral vein right through the groin go all the way up to the right side of the heart, right atrium, and puncture the interatrial septum, and then put a catheter to the left side of the heart, and then take a plug, which looks like a, to, to make it easy, looks like an umbrella, and deploy it into a left atrial appendage. Once we deploy the umbrella into left atrial appendage, it opens up and clocks off the left atrial appendage. So over a period of next 30 to 45 days, that left atrial appendage is, is closed off by a layer of endothelium of our own body, during which time patient needs to be taking Coumadin or a Eliquis or Rivaroxaban or newer anticoagulant. And after about 45 days, we go into the heart and image it through the echocardiogram, go, go, through, the, go through the esophagus and image the left atrial appendage. And if that image shows that the left atrial appendage is closed off, that means there's no flow into the left atrial appendage, then patients can completely stop Coumadin, completely come off of it by reducing the risk of stroke by about 97 to 99%. That's a phenomenal reduction yeah. in, the, in the risk of stroke. And those people who would always live with the, you know, with the thought that, okay, I cannot take an anticoagulant because I could bleed. Right. If I don't take an anticoagulant, then I'm at a re really high risk of stroke. Most often, these are the patients who are likely to bleed are also likely to stroke. Now they have an option to not to be uh, on those anticoagulants. Now, this is also true in those patients who want to be active athletically. They want to have, they want to uh, go and do the competitive sports. So let's say they have paroxysmal atrial fibrillation and they don't want to be on a anticoagulant which would make them bleed when they fall, hit their head, bleed in the head. Right. Those are the patients are also uh, those patients are also being helped with this kind of procedure. So uh, this is definitely a, 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 a newer development. Now we have the second generation devices and uh, some of the studies uh, are showing about 100% uh, success rate with this procedure. Uh, even though the full much of the data is out, the full uh, five-year follow-up um, came out about a year and a half ago or so, more follow-up data is coming out. But, but this is definitely another area where things have revolutionized significantly for the past four to five years or so. So when you deploy this umbrella in the left atrium, it, it sort of compresses the appendage against the wall, which eventually sort of sloughs away or dissolves? Or what, what happens when you deploy the umbrella and compress the appendage? It's, it's basically works like closing a lid. So if you have a if you have a open uh, bottle which is leaking uh, stuff out very slowly, if you go in and close that hole, close that uh, bottle, then the leakage will stop. So basically, the umbrella is compressed. This compressed umbrella is put into this the mouth of the appendage. Some of it is inside the appendage as well. So once you put it at the mouth, it slowly expands once it's released and then snugly fits in as a like a cork on a wine bottle to say the layer, to give yeah. you a good example. Yeah. So whatever 
whatever blood that was going into this left atrial appendage will clog off and would stay in there. And then the, our own body lays down a layer of endothelium on top of this, completely warding it off. That way, the risk of blood clot developing inside this little chamber called as left atrial appendage is completely prevented. Okay. Well, let's uh, move on to a, another question. Uh, recently, I've been reading a bit about migraine headaches because of the journal articles we get. And I didn't realize that Peyton Freeman O'Valley was somehow mixed up with migraine headaches, refractory migraine headaches, interesting connection. And then of course, unexplained emboli that occur, emboli, uh, that occur in adults. We backtrack and figure out, gee, maybe you're a, a rare patent foramen ovale that was missed and now you've got this uh, very serious uh, embolic event that happened to you. So I think people are out and about now looking for ways to treat patent foramen ovale. And I know you're very focused on that. And I'd like to get your view on how to approach it and what's the latest and greatest in that area. Absolutely. So the patent foramen ovale is, uh, it's important to know that uh, at the outset that there have been various studies. Uh, the first trial, if we talk about migraine, was a MIST trial, M-I-S-T, MIST. And I believe that was published uh, close to uh, about eight or 10 years ago, uh, maybe more than that, which did report um, some improvement in, uh, in migraine, uh, episodic migraines, as well as number of uh, migraine headaches. But there was also a lot of controversies associated with that trial. So it, that's the reason why the PFO closures for migraine did not come about. Now, there have been various trials uh, since, since uh, early 2000 or so in this patient foramen ovale. But then outset, I would like to mention that about 25% of us are born with patent foramen ovale. Now, all, not all of them need to be closed. In fact, very few of them need to be closed, but in those people who, where this needs to be closed, the benefit is outstanding. Now, there have been a lot of trials which came in. For example, the first trial that uh, came out was called as RESPECT trial. Uh, the first and second iteration of which uh, showed some improvement in uh, from reduction in the stroke risk in those patients with what we call cryptogenic stroke. Uh, about four out of 10 strokes are cryptogenic strokes. So that means, the neurologists have done all the investigations and they cannot find a reason for the stroke. And in those patients, about 25% of those would have patent foramen ovale. There's definitely been uh, significant uh, investigations that has, uh, that has happened over the past decade or so, and that clearly proves that PFOs, what we call, are, are definitely a high risk uh, in those patients with cryptogenic stroke for them to have a second stroke. You know, for a long time, um, the data was in dispute, but now we have undisputable data. There have been multiple trials in various continents. For example, there was a RESPECT trial, there was a CLOSE trial, which is a different device. There's a CLOSURE trial initially, which was negative trial, but subsequently all the trials have been positive uh, to show the benefit of the PFO closure. There's a PC trial, which was done using 11 different closure devices, which all showed a significant reduction uh, in the in the risk of a secondary uh, a second uh, cryptogenic stroke in these patients. Now we have a defense PFO trial, DEFENSC PFO trial, uh, which actually subcategorized these patients and showed us in patients who have patent foramen ovale, which highly mobile interatrial septum, what we call aneurysmal septum, 
the closure of these septums is perhaps more beneficial uh, than in just closing it out, closing this PFO off in those patients who, in whom the atrial septal aneurysm is absent. Um, the number needed to treat is somewhere around 20 to 25 or so. Uh, just to give an idea, the number needed to treat for beta blockade as well as acinephrosis is probably in high 30s or so. So uh, uh, it's still surprising that this is not talked about that much. Even American, Neuro American uh, Neurological Association has also endorsed uh, in a way uh, that in those patients who have cryptogenic stroke, uh, these PFOs uh, could be closed and this could benefit uh, these patients. Now, there's also a recent publication that um, came out of uh, Italy, uh, Italian uh, doctors, uh, uh, looking at the patients with uh, migraines and the PFO closure, and they see, even though there is, uh, there needs to be a randomized control trial, probably a large randomized control trial to prove that closure of PFO is helpful uh, in migraine therapy. Uh, the registry trial seemed to suggest that there could be a reduction, a significant reduction, in uh, the number of uh, episodes of migraine. Um, in the in these patients, now interestingly, it's also uh, interesting. Note now, it's own anecdotal ev evidence from uh, from my own experience, as well as a couple of my colleagues who close a lot of these uh, PFOs. That in about ten to twenty percent of patients, uh, migraine gets worse after we close the parent foramen ovale. Now, only to get better in about two to three months which is about the time we expect this parent foramen over devices to endothelize and to be a part of the part of the uh, intraatrial septum so there has to be something uh, where the endothelial sealing of this pfo probably reduce the risk of reduce the reduce the incidence of migraine and uh, and, and probably prevents the uh, the future migraine episodes again this has to be proved this is only anecdotal as well as registry data uh, but I'm sure uh, that with, with more evidence or a period of next decade or two, we'll, we'll have that information as well. Well, I can't resist in closing to quiz you a bit about uh, your observations now that you've transitioned a little bit more into a, um, a practice and teaching world. You're interventional cardiologist, coronary endovascular and structural interventionalist at the Midwest Cardiology Center in Indiana, and you've just come from Texas Tech in the more academic teaching world, both under the uh, umbrella or the cloud of COVID. Uh, what's your observations, how it's impacted um, your clinical care, the strategy you're seeing in, uh, among your colleagues in a major Midwest uh, cardiology center? Um, any observations or any thoughts about changes and uh, the way you've had to adapt? Um, this COVID pandemic has certainly impacted us in a very bad way. And we know that El Paso was very disproportionately affected uh, because of the, you know, all the uh, um, underinsured patients as well as patients who need a lot of care. Uh, I know you are helping a lot of those people with your rotocare clinic as well and and i've been very proud to be involved with that and it's very very heartening to know that there are still organizations trying to help these patients uh, but definitely uh, covid pandemic itself has changed the paradigm of the healthcare delivery 
Um, I believe now we know that many of the care, most of this care that we are offering could be offered to the telemedicine platform um, rather than, uh, you know, rather than physically being present. There are certain limitations, obviously, uh, particularly in the cardiology and GI world. For example, you cannot uh, look at the skin lesions. You cannot look at the, cannot palpate a um, enlarged liver uh, via the video conferencing. And that really requires a skillful technique, skillful clinician to pick up all those subtle clues. You cannot hear, you can still hear a murmur by, you know, by, you know, putting a, a stethoscope to the chest and, you know, enhancing the audio through the online system, but still there is something to visually seeing the patient as well. So I suspect that some of the scare uh, post-COVID is going to transition to uh, the remote care. Uh, we are coming to realize that all the trip uh, that patients used to make um, for, for, for their, for their follow-up care and stuff, many of that could be done um, through the through telemedicine a platform, um, but it's also interesting to note that um, the various uh, myriad way in which the COVID itself is presenting, uh, even three, four, six months down the line, we are seeing quite a few late uh, myocarditis uh, pictures, a uh, light picture, uh, three or six months, even six months down the line after COVID. Somebody who has been affected with COVID, uh, say example, October, November last year showing up, with the picture very classic of uh, myocarditis and the heart failure symptoms. So I think this has left a, left a very lasting impression on our uh, psych, uh, this particular virus, uh, very unfortunately, but hopefully, you know, hopefully we are seeing the end of it with the vaccinations coming out. Um, hopefully we'll, 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 we're on the other end of the bell curve. Uh, on this particular uh, pandemic. Uh, other things that we have seen in this code, particularly in terms of cardiovascular diseases are that uh, even when I was in El Paso, that we see a lot of patients for young patients with absolutely no coronary artery disease coming in with acute coronary, coronary syndrome, like ST elevation MIs. And many of these patients tended to have acute thrombus formation in their, in their coronary arteries, very notoriously hard to get rid of. Um, so that's, that's pretty, very unique and sad, but, but as I said, hopefully we're on the other side of the bell curve and the patients are coming back for the, for the care. Hopefully this is for good in a way where we can balance out the, uh, remote care uh, versus the in-house care for these patients, uh, all for everybody's good. So there's always a silver lining with everything. I hope this is it for the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, that's a great answer. Dr. Nagarajareo, and, and let me say, uh, you've been a great representative for American Heart Month. It's been a real pleasure for us to have you represent cardiology and to, to educate AM, AFMR members and other listeners here uh, to our monthly podcast. Uh, we wish you only the very best as you continue your career in cardiology. We here at Texas Tech, uh, it's certainly been a great loss for us, but we know that um, our paths will cross again, and we wish you and your family only the very best in the next steps of your career. Uh, also, I can't let uh, this opportunity go by. Usually being from Australia, we can give India an elbow and say, you know, good luck next time. But unfortunately, India is on a, is on a, a roll, and they've beaten Australia, now they've beaten England. So we have to give respect to the Indian cricket team 
uh, as well as a final gesture. Uh, but in most, <laughs> but seriously speaking, Dr. Nagarajare, thank you for your time today, for your, for your great uh, responses and for the uh, education you've given our, our listeners. Thank you so much for having me and thanks to all the listeners at AFMR and uh, Southern Society as well and Miss uh, Karina Espino for having set this up and uh, really worked hard behind it and uh, very insightful and probing questions uh, by you. I thought when you were uh, talking about India, Asia, I, was I thought you were talking about COVID pandemic. As you know, somehow with uh, more than 1.3 billion people, the number of people, uh, number of infected cases have significantly come down uh, because of uh, strict social rules as well as uh, um, as you may also know that uh, we are the largest producer. Uh, I still hold an Indian passport, so I could, <laughs> I could call myself uh, Indian's uh, largest producer of vaccines. So uh, while pandemic did uh, devastate us, we're trying to heal the world one country at a time uh, by, by, by kind of equally allocating these vaccines, including AstraZeneca vaccine yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, to all the countries, including poor countries and rich countries both alike. Uh, so that everybody gets the benefit of that. We wish that uh, this pandemic ends soon. We wish that uh, um, you know people get back to their regular life. And, uh, and, and again, thank you for having me. It's been a wonderful association and hope to continue with this for decades to come. We look forward to further collaboration with you. Your, your work is always important. And uh, please uh, utilize our journal and please continue to be active in the American Federation for medical research. So listeners, this concludes our podcast for, Jan for, for February. Um, please um, inform your colleagues. It's out there. It's going to be posted. Uh, utilize it. It's a great uh, educational addition. Again, all the very best. Thank you for our guest. Thank you to Karina Espino, who loyally makes all this happen on cue. And we look forward to uh, our next podcast. Goodbye for now. <laughs>